you would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter together today, and hopefully get through the whole chapter as well. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who, were the, who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we uh, sit before your word, we pray again, Lord, that you would give us insight, understanding, uh, learning uh, of wisdom and knowledge and all these things, Lord, that you would make us in, in many ways like Daniel, that we would be able to, to grasp the deeper truths uh, that are found in your word. We pray as well, Lord, you would help us to know how to apply them, uh, just as Daniel and his three friends were forced to apply your word in a foreign land. Lord, help us to apply your word. In these days and in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As most of you know, the, the new Speaker of the House uh, in Congress comes from Louisiana. His name is Mike Johnson. Don't worry, I'm not getting political on you. I'm making a point. Um, it's interesting. Um, 
Again, I don't know whether to support the man or not in terms of his uh, particular agenda. I don't know what his agenda is, but uh, as many of you know, he reportedly identifies himself as a Christian and says that he actually believes that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, surprisingly, that has caused great consternation amongst many in Washington, D.C., given the fact that uh, he particularly, during his acceptance speech as the new House Speaker, uh, admitted that it was the sovereignty of God that put him in this particular position, and also said that it was God's providence that had put them in their respective positions. So all the leaders of the House, he says, God has placed you here and to give thanks uh, in, in that regard. Uh, as a result of this speech, he's now considered an extremist. Uh, as you know, the times are changing. Uh, at one time in our country, every leader would have said something like that. Uh, in fact, over hundreds of years, we've acknowledged the fact that God's providence has made our country come to be in that regard. But, but again, the times are changing. The United States is looking a lot more like Babylon than like Jerusalem uh, nowadays in that regard. But it would only be a matter of time before Daniel and his three friends were also labeled extremists uh, in Babylon, but only after each of them were elevated to higher levels within the government, just as Mike Johnson was. But at first, when they arrived in Babylon and Jerusalem, they were really not much different than the rest of the young men that were brought there. They all were the cream of the crop. They all were used without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent, it says, to stand in the king's palace. So these were uh, really the best of the best, according to verse 4. King Nebuchadnezzar only took the best. After all, he's trying to establish something uh, in the future, having young men who are competent in their own right, and his goal was to re-educate them in the Babylonian ways and their customs, to be subjected to a very coercive form of indoctrination, as well as to be trained in various pagan occult practices. This was his goal from the very beginning. And as we mentioned last week, Daniel became very familiar with Babylonian culture and language and things of that nature. We know, first of all, that half of this book was written in the language of the Chaldean Empire, which is the language of Aramaic instead of Hebrew. Half of the book of Daniel is not in Hebrew, but rather in this foreign language. Likewise, Daniel would, would have had to have learned Sumerian and Akkadian as well, because if you're going to read Babylonian literature, most of, it, most of that ancient literature is written in those languages. And he would certainly have had to have read uh, Enuma Elish, which is a creation story that, interestingly, I was required to read in college. But it's a creation myth that basically proves that Marduk is the head of the Babylonian gods. This was certainly a work he would have had to have read. Additionally, he would also have had to learn about astrology so that he can read the omens and the stars. He also would have to learn some things about anatomy and other aspects of science, particularly so that he could read omens and other body parts and bones and things of that nature. He was to learn all these different aspects of practical pagan cultic magic, if you will. But we must ask the question, why is Nebuchadnezzar doing this? What is his end game here? Uh, why not just kill these men or put them in prison? Why is he educating them? Why is he making them a part of his entourage, if you will? Because the king is not just thinking about the present, he's thinking about the future. How can I maintain control over the next generation? I need to have people who are loyal to me of this particular background, of this Jewish persuasion, who have basically bought uh, completely into this new program. So he purposely isolates them from their parents, he emasculates them, literally, and then brainwashes them so that they'll forget any loyalties to the old country and become servile subjects of his realm. 
Now, certainly Nebuchadnezzar was not the only government leader to attempt to do this. Uh, we certainly know the same thing happened during the time of the Nazi regime in Germany. At that time, 2,300,000 boys were forced to join the Hitler Youth Organization. Uh, early on, prior to 1933, but prior to the Nazis coming into power, there are only a, a couple of thousand who were involved in this program. But the soon, as soon as they come into power, every other organization that has youth involved immediately are engulfed into the Nazi program. And so uh, it's interesting, there were 600,000 youth involved in the Lutheran Youth Organization who immediately the next day became Hitler Youth instead of Lutheran Youth. And we see the same thing throughout. By 1936, every youth organization in Germany had to be a Hitler youth organization or else it was declared to be illegal. Uh, so clearly, Hitler had the same plan in mind. Make sure we isolate the youth from their parents, retrain them contrary to their parents' morals and religion, and then instill in them a complete and utter dependence and loyalty to the state. It's a very common program. Many governments have have done it throughout time. In Nebuchadnezzar's scheme, uh, his, his goal was to have them educated for three years. And at the end of that three years, there was to be an examination that would take place to make sure that only the best of the best were serving in his entourage. So this king gives uh, these men over to his uh, chief eunuch named Ashpenaz. And one of the first things that that official does is to rename all of these men, regardless of their persuasion. And so we find that... Uh, this is exactly what happens. If you look in verse 6, we find that the original names, if you look closely at that verse, you'll find that every one of their names ends with either the two letters E-L or ends with the last three letters I-A-H. Uh, if you know anything about Hebrew at all, then you'll know that the, the L means L for Elohim, which means God. And then the I-A-H is the shortened form for Yah or Yahweh. So we have, again, all their names have something to do with the God of Israel. Daniel means El or Elohim is my judge, whereas Mishael means who or what is El or Elohim. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, and Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. But again, the head eunuch purposely changes all of their names so that no longer gives any credence whatsoever to the Hebrew faith. He changes, as a result, Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. Bel is one of the Babylonian gods. The same way, he changes Azariah's name to Abednego, or literally Abed-Nebo. Nebo is another Babylonian god. The same way, he changes Hananiah's name to Shadrach, which means Aku is exalted, another Babylonian god. And then finally, he changes Mishael's name to Meshach, which means who is Aku, which literally is sort of thrown right into his face because Mishael means who is the Lord. Now it's saying, who is Aku? In other words, let's give glory to this God instead. So again, Nebuchadnezzar was not the only government leader to attempt to do this type of thing. Uh, you'd be surprised that even as late as 1976, there was an issue of Christianity today in which anyone in the nation of Albania was given a new name if their name was Abraham, Ruth, Mark, or any other biblical name. They weren't allowed to call themselves by their biblical names. They had to be given a new name to eradicate any religious identity and to be able to take on the new communist beliefs in order to stamp out their history. They had to change quite a bit of what they believed. Thankfully, in the United States, we've never had anything such uh, like this that was so drastic or harsh. Uh, nevertheless, as you can imagine, over the years, there have been many subtle changes that have taken place, like the frog and the kettle concept that we've continually 
bought into. The seculars have succeeded in almost completely eradicating the name of God from any aspect of our culture, certainly in the public realms and the schools as well as in the civic arena. Um, the one thing they haven't been able to do yet, and I stress yet, is to completely stamp out the concept of the Christian family. It's only a matter of time before they are able to succeed in that, unless uh, the Lord tarries in that regard. But uh, the changes are so subtle, it's hard to tell what's happening immediately, but you can see there's a scheme at place. I can tell you that because I have three daughters who now all take college classes. <laughs> I can see it so plainly. Even though two of them are still in high school, they're in the college realm, they all are involved in some way or another in the public institution of the college. And it's amazing every time they come home and they tell me of the papers that they're having to write. One of them is being encouraged to consider prostitution as a good thing. Uh, or consider some other aspect of sexual immorality in every possible way. It's very common, you know, having to write about why it might be good to work at Hooters instead of not doing it. Uh, things of that nature. It's, it's, it's crazy. But then even on social media and every other aspect of our society, you see there's a constant sense of trying to get... The, the kids to buy into a morally depraved culture. I, I think uh, some of you know that I, I get on Duolingo almost every day, and you're like, what is Duolingo? It's a language app where basically I, I freshen up on my Spanish skills because I teach, uh, some, uh, teach some classes down in South America. But I know it's a free app, and I know it's run by some very liberal people who want to constantly make sure that I understand that there's a different sexual view of things than what I believe in. And so at least uh, on any given week, maybe two or three times a week, I'm required to translate that Mary loves Sally. It's very common. You know, and I sort of know that that's what it is. It's a free app, and I still do it, and I just get those wrong each time. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but nevertheless, I started to brush up on my Latin, which I was really excited to do. I hadn't done Latin in quite, quite a number of years, and so I started brushing up on the Latin. And I was fascinated because in the Latin language on the Duolingo app, Basically, they try to stick with that ancient culture. And so instead of like translating, I got on my cell phone yesterday, they'll translate, I sacrificed to God so-and-so yesterday. And instead of talking about apples or oranges, they're talking about olives, things that Roman Empire people would normally do and, and say, right? Except for this one case where I have to say, and Marcus is married to Brutus. And I'm thinking, come on. Really, if you're going to stick with all this ancient language now, I, but even though they didn't even have a concept of marriage in that way or that, that form, I still am forced to, to translate in, in, in that way if I want to pass that level. It forces me to do it. Now, I as an adult know better, but I think what's the average kid who doesn't know history perhaps as well as someone who's in their 50s now, who think, well, this has always been the way it's been. You see how, how subtle these changes take place. I think a lot of Christian parents over the years have objected to the use of curse words and, and overt sexual references in literature, and rightly so, but there's so many other problems that are highly invested in our culture and our overall worldview of, of the nation all around us. How in the world can you protect your child in a day and age such as this? This is where I'm going to get into trouble in the sermon today. Even though Ellen and I have homeschooled our children for the formative years of their life, I'll say this, I don't think homeschooling is necessarily the solution. So let me offend the people on that side. 
I can tell you this, that even when we homeschooled our, our kids, they were still uh, influenced in so many different ways by Babylonian ideals in different forms or imaginations. I can't keep them protected in every possible way. I know that. On the other hand, I'll say this as well, if you send your children to public school, you're necessarily putting them in even greater danger. They will be completely indoctrinated in every possible way in Babylonian ideals. Um, you have to know that from the, from the get-go if that's the choice that you make. Even with that being said, though, it's interesting, having been in the church for a number of years now and having been a youth pastor and seeing the outcome of different families, I'd, I'd say this, I personally have seen some public school kids that are spiritually healthier than homeschool kids or Christian school kids. And I ask myself, what's the difference? Is it the schooling? Is that what makes the difference? In my understanding, and again, I'm, I'm still working these things out myself, it seems to me oftentimes that the family itself and what they do at home is what makes the most difference. Because you can have a Christian schooler who goes home and his family does nothing about Christianity at home. Does it make any difference whatsoever? In the same way, uh, vice versa. I'd also say the choice of that individual child's uh, friends, the friends that they hang out with makes a huge difference. I think what made the huge, the big difference here with Daniel is he had three other friends who also loved the Lord, and together they were helping each other in the midst of this horrible environment where they were completely surrounded by paganism. I think if you send your kid to a school and they're all by themselves, it's got to be extremely, if not impossible, to, to be able to succeed. Uh, but I'd also say, even with that, I'd say also um, there are other circumstances that play into these things as well. I can never guarantee one, one outcome or another. We can't ever discount the sovereignty of God in these things either. I mean, you literally, you, as a parent, you could do absolutely everything wrong, <laughs> and your child still comes to faith in Christ. I mean, you could literally beat the kid to a pulp. I'm not encouraging that, by the way, but, but literally... And they could still come to faith in Christ. Or you could do it the other way, right? You could do everything possibly right. And they walk away from the Lord. There's no guarantees on, on either side. Uh, but I will, I will say, in this particular case, Daniel and his three friends, they, they had a lot going for them, even though they were surrounded by paganism. Um, Daniel and his three friends were certainly ripped away from their parents. They were separated from the worship of the one true God. There was no worship in a synagogue anywhere in Babylon that was available to them. They were surrounded by pagan thought and practice. How could these young men continue to maintain faithfulness to God in such a situation? That's a great question to ask. As much as the text focuses on the change of names here, I must point out to the fact, what did their parents originally name them? Their parents were expecting them, in some way or another, to have a relationship with God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have named them these things, right? When we look closely at it and we see each one of these, they, they were dedicated somehow to God from the very beginning. You know, in England, when you ask someone, sometimes they're considered uh, old-time, uh, old-fashioned now if someone uses that term, but still, you can go to England, someone can ask you, what is your Christian name? What do they mean by that? They're asking for your first name. It's the name that was given to you at your baptism, because most people in England were baptized at that time by the Anglican Church. And they were wanting to know, what is the name in which you were dedicated to God? What is your Christian name? 
Uh, we certainly don't do that in, in America, certainly not today. But the implication was that your child was somehow given over to God from the very beginning. In the same manner, Daniel and his three friends were uh, dedicated to God from birth. The, the Jews were saying something to their children, the same way that Joshua was saying, as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. There's that expectation from the very beginning. We will serve the Lord. And it's interesting, long after Daniel was given his Babylonian name, he never forgot the rock from which he was hewn. He never forgot his identity. He never uh, stopped calling himself Daniel. And we'll we'll see that's the case because even later on, uh, many years later, Daniel chapter 6, one of the kings himself is not referring to him as Belteshazzar. He's referring to him as Daniel. He has learned this man is worthy of his own name. He believes in the Lord. He's, he's following the Lord. It wasn't just uh, his home life, though, that kept him safe. I'd say in, in, in many other ways, uh, the, the culture in which they grew up prior to being captured in Babylon was actually a very strong uh, believing culture. Uh, what you have to know about this prior to their being taken away to Babylon during the reign of Jehoiakim, all, three, all four of these men were born during the reign of Josiah when he was king. Go back and look it up historically. What was happening during the reign of Josiah? There was a huge revival in the land. Prior to Josiah, Manassas and Ammon were wicked kings who basically had closed the doors to the temple, boarded it up so that you couldn't even go into the temple. They had lost the word of God. They couldn't find God's word. The law of God had not been read to anyone in many years. Josiah becomes king the temple is cleared out. People open it. They find the Word of God. What does, what does Josiah do? He begins to read the law of God to everyone in Israel, and there's a revival that breaks out. Who do you think is a part of this? Daniel and his three friends, it's their parents. They're getting inundated with the Word of God, and they're raising up their children, calling them by their own names, instilling in them the same faith of their parents, of their fathers, the faith of their fathers. And as a result, they have a leg up, if you will, uh, from some who, who would not have had that. Uh, but without a doubt, there's some influence in the church as a whole in that regard. I, I guess what I'm saying, is it's not just individual families that are important here, but, but the culture of, of all of God's people together. There is a, a means in which we're all trying to encourage that next generation that we would not uh, pass on even those who are in their 80s and their 90s, until we instill in the next generation the fear of the Lord. That's, that's what the Scripture says again and again, right? Daniel and his three friends were able to think for themselves, I think in many ways, because of that, that, that culture that they grew up in. It wasn't like they were just thrown into something without having any idea of, of what the Word of God says. Strangely, though, it wasn't the name change that caused Daniel and his three friends problems. They accepted that. Okay, you want to call me something else, call me something else. It also wasn't the fact that they were indoctrinated into Babylonian mythology and other aspects of pagan rites. I I don't think that they were practicing these things, but they had to learn all about them, right? So they could pass the SAT, the Sorcery Arts and Trickery exam. (laughs) But there was something different about this last component um, of their... Training, and that was they had to eat at the king's table and drink his food, or, or eat his food and, and drink his wine, if you will. And uh, as a result, Daniel immediately came under conviction that by doing this, it would defile him in one way or another. Strangely, though, 
He doesn't tell us why. And so there's been quite a big, uh, if you read a bunch of commentaries and other um, uh, writings on this particular text, uh, there's a whole slew of ideas of what it was that was potentially defiling to Daniel and his friends. Uh, In verse 5, we're told that the king assigned each of them a daily portion of the food to eat and the wine they drank. But verse 8 says, and Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It's interesting, the ESV and any other English translation is not going to pick up on this, I don't think, unless it's a very wooden, literal translation. But uh, in the Hebrew, uh, Daniel uses the same word three times, in, in verse 7, twice, and then also in verse 8. And, and, and the word that you would kind of translate in English would be the word set, S-E-T, to set something. So in other words, the chief eunuch set the new name for Daniel, and then he set the new names for his friends. And then in verse 8, again, if you were translated in the same sort of way, it would say something like, and Daniel set his heart not to defile himself. So in other words, this eunuch and the, the Babylonian machine, if you will, is constantly trying to reset the, the sons of Israel. But Daniel's determined to continue to be set according to God's ways and not to be reset according to the Babylonian way. Right? He's, he's making a, a, a stand here. This is very important that he takes a stand. Again, no matter how hard Babylon has tried to reset him, Daniel in his heart is determined he's not going to be set according to the Babylonian ways. But what is this potential defilement? I'm not sure. Some have suggested that the food was served on uh, the king's table was, was considered unclean. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 11 gives a whole list of animals and other types of things you're not allowed to eat in order to be kosher, in order to be clean. Uh, perhaps something like that was on the table, but that doesn't explain why he avoided drinking wine. Uh, wine is not on that list and wasn't forbidden according to God's law. Still others have said that the food and wine was perhaps offered up to idols, right? And that, that would perhaps make sense uh, why Daniel would abstain, but then usually if they're offering meat unto idols, the king would also offer up the vegetables to idols to, as well. So anything that was on the king's table, if it was offered, it likely was offered up in that manner. So it doesn't necessarily explain that uh, aspect of things. On the other hand, some have suggested that Daniel wanted to become uh, less dependent or entirely independent of the king's provisions. He didn't want to constantly be dependent upon the government, if you will. It's a good way of Americans interpreting this passage. I like it. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we'll find that the vegetables are still coming from the king, so that doesn't really solve that problem either. Still, some others have suggested that Daniel was merely drawing a line in the sand to keep his heart free, if you will, from temptation by eating of these luxuries and delicacies and things of that nature but in daniel chapter 10 we find that daniel is doing just that later in under the cyrus's court it says he's regularly eating meat and the delicacies as well as drinking wine except on one particular occasion when he's fasting but otherwise he's eating delicate things he's living a life of luxury if you will he's drinking wine regularly uh, but not just during that particular time so that doesn't explain it either nor was Daniel a vegetarian, naturally. So that doesn't help any of you who are trying to promote that. Nor was he a teetotaler. So it doesn't help any of you who are trying to promote that. Nor was he trying to promote the Daniel diet plan of Rick Warren that was on the New York, desktop, this New York Times bestseller list. Uh, there was something particularly defiling about the food and the drink that was at King Nebuchadnezzar's table. He doesn't tell us exactly what it is. But whatever it was it immediately caused him to have a conscious, conscience problem. So, 
It's interesting the way Daniel responds to this. Um, he had already resolved himself not to be defiled in any particular way. And as a result, um, he, he asked uh, the eunuch to make an exception for him. He doesn't demand a kosher meal. He doesn't uh, throw a fit about it. He doesn't draw attention to himself. But, but still very plainly, very simply, but also boldly, he goes up to the eunuch and, and simply says, uh, can I not do this so as not to be defiled? According to verse 10, uh, the official says to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink, for why shouldn't he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? So even though he likes Daniel, he's not willing to go along with Daniel's request. Uh, so even though um, he didn't really personally care what Daniel did, he was afraid that the king would punish him as a result, so he, he said no. But that doesn't end the matter for Daniel. Notice he goes to the next guy down the chain. Instead of the head eunuch, he, knows, he now goes to the particular servant, the steward who is over him, who actually delivers him the food. And in this case, he again asks if, uh, if he can have an exception. And this time he makes so, sort of a wager with the guy. and says, well, look, you know, give me 10 days. Give us 10 days. If we can eat these vegetables and drink this water for as vibrant and healthy as the others, then, then let us continue on with that. If not, then we'll leave it in your hands. Um, and as a result, text reads, verse 15, says, At the end of those ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, they were fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So contrary to Rick Warren's premise, Daniel's diet actually adds fat to the bones rather than causing you to lose weight. Because in ancient times, you didn't measure healthiness by fat or by skinniness, but, uh, but by fat. So when the steward saw this, he only gave the four men vegetables and water for the rest of that time. Now, a couple of things I want to point out what we notice here. One, one thing we should notice in this chapter is how many times God is mentioned as sovereignly intervening in the kingdom of Babylon. Go back to verse 1. Even though the king had destroyed Jerusalem and is taking these men away, verse 2 tells us that it was the Lord who had given all of these treasures, all of these people, into the king's hand. Even though we find that the head eunuch is unwilling to do what Daniel has said, it also says that the Lord made this head eunuch to be uh, in good favor with Daniel. So he, he, he uh, was very gracious to Daniel and, and helped him out in a lot of other ways. Uh, this is something that God had given Daniel to give him favor inside of the, of the eunuchs. Uh, in, in fact, the same way, when they actually come to the examination at the end, we find that it's God who makes them more knowledgeable more skillful, better equipped than anybody else who has gone through this same examination at the end of three years, and we find that God has, has caused them uh, to be so. And obviously, he doesn't state it directly, God also is miraculously causing them to be stronger and healthier in flesh, even though they're eating less than all of these other men are. This early success for Daniel and his three friends, though, is not as spectacular or as glorious as the later trials will be, as you, you can imagine. Uh, it's interesting, even Hebrews chapter 11, it doesn't mention Daniel's three friends directly by name, but it mentions some of the things that they did, right? And it says, by faith, if you remember, they stopped the mouths of lions. By faith, they quenched the violence of fire. But nowhere in that section does it say, by faith, they ate their vegetables, right? even though you could use that with your kids if you really need to. <laughs> Nonetheless, when everyone else was being confronted by the patterns of Babylon and quickly giving in to whatever it was that they wanted, 
Daniel and his three friends took a stand on this matter of conscience. And this proves to be pivotal for the rest of the book of Daniel. It starts here. No doubt there would have been others, even of Jewish persuasion, who would have ridiculed and mocked them for being so particular about something like this. But they were determined not to defile themselves. And as a result, they determined that whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, they would do it to the glory of God. I have no doubt that what enabled them to persevere in their greater trials later on would, again, hinge upon how they responded to this first trial. It gave them confidence for the future trials that they would face. What especially stands out to me, though, is how Daniel doesn't hide his reasonings for not wanting to eat the food from the king's table. Why does that stand out to me? Because the very man who's responsible for resetting him in the Babylonian ways, he's telling him directly, I don't want to do this because it will defile me according to the old ways. So in other words, he's admitting to the guy who's responsible to make him think differently that I'm still concerned about the old way of thinking and not your way of thinking. He's, he's really gutsy here, and he, he doesn't know for sure that uh, he's, he's going to be without consequence for even asking this, but literally at this moment, he is flying his colors, if you will. He's, he's raising up the mass and saying, this is where I stand. Regardless of what you've been teaching me all this time, I don't want to be defiled according to my God. I'm, I'm very impressed with that. that. That's something that we all could be commended to do, even our own Christian faith. I think we're all too often uh, try to hide what we really think. But he's, he's boldly coming out and saying, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, essentially. I believe in these things. He's taking a stand. Notice, too, his expectation that the Lord would be faithful to him in the midst of this trial. I mean, he, he basically puts his faith on the line, literally, when he makes this wager with the steward and says, you know, I, I'm willing to do this. If it doesn't work, then so be it. But I'm, I'm relying upon the Lord to help me make it through this, this trial. Um, and again, I think we can learn something from that in terms of our own prayer life and what we expect God to do when we're in the midst of our own trials. Do we expect God to help us? He's promised that no temptation will seize us except what is common to man, that even when we're seized in the midst of that temptation, what does he say? He will provide a way out. Do you believe that he'll provide a way out? Are you looking for that way out? Are you expecting God to provide that way out? Daniel clearly did. Lastly, don't diminish Daniel's perspective in terms of what would defile him given the fact that he made a resolution unto God not to defile himself. Even before this trial occurred, he had already made a resolution in his heart that he would not be defiled, he would not be separated from his Lord based upon what was going on in Babylon. Uh, and, and for those of you who know anything about Jonathan Edwards, the uh, 18th century pastor, theologian, Puritan-esque kind of a guy, uh, it was actually before he turned 20. So in all of his teen years that he wrote his 70 resolutions on how he sought to live before God in a holy manner. While he was a young teenager up into his upper teens, he continued to resolve himself. I'm going to live for God. If no one else does, I'm going to. And it's fascinating. In one of those resolutions that he wrote, one of them reads this way. Resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Now, you might think that Edwards was prone to obesity like Rick Warren. 
He wasn't. I can say that because I'm prone to obesity too. He was pretty skinny and scrawny guy. If you look at the pictures of Jonathan Edwards, he always looked like this, you know? <laughs> Nevertheless, he wanted to live in every way to God's glory. Even something small like that, he took very seriously. I think I've shared with you before, uh, he was a product of the Puritans. The Puritans would often say that the luxuries of the flesh or the indulgences of the flesh were gateway sins. They would open you up to greater sins. If you, if you put your guard down in the basic things regarding sleep and eating and all those other fleshly things, he says you're opening yourself up to much greater temptation as well. And so uh, Jonathan Edwards was very careful of what he did in terms of what he brought into his mouth as well as what he brought into his soul. He was always watching and guarding these types of things. And, and even at the end of each day, when he didn't keep that resolution, he was quick to repent of that. Lord, help me to be more watchful tomorrow. Help me to, to, to have a better control. Again, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being what? Self-control. Self-control over every aspect of, of what we do. Sometimes it's the little things that keep us from serving the Lord. Sometimes it's the little things that, the things that we do in private that cause us to fall when no one else sees us. And I, I think it's interesting, likely that's why Daniel's parents named him, the Lord is my judge. Who's watching over me at all times? Who's paying attention to what I do in secret and what I do in private? Who knows what's going on in my mind at all times? Daniel was very cognizant of that. And as a result, he's not willing to defile himself when perhaps many others are. Of course, in this instance, Daniel's faithfulness serves as an example for us, but, but ultimately it does point us to the perfect, uh, faithful servant who is Jesus Christ. Uh, literally, when we go back and we read that uh, passage in the New Testament that Mark read for us earlier, and we, we talk about the, the parable of the talents and what we've done with the talents that God has given to us. And, I mean, ultimately, these types of Scripture passages have been written for us because we all have played the role of the wicked and lazy servant. We all have been uh, prone to do the wrong thing. And so uh, none of us is that perfect, good, and faithful servant who deserves to go to heaven. Uh, ultimately, we're looking toward the one who is, Christ, who kept himself free from all defilement, who, who was obedient even unto death, even unto death on the cross, it says, right? That he's able to open the doors for those of us who have been less than faithful, less than good, has given us hope for redemption from our ruined life, from all those times in which we have compromised with the ways of the world. All of us have. There's not a single person in here who can say, you know, I've kept myself clean. I've kept myself pure. I've kept myself holy in every way. None of us, none of us can say that. All of us have failed in so many ways, and that's the beauty of the gospel. That's why we say that there are uh, new morning mercies every day. Why is that? Because Christ was faithful every night. He can give us that because he's full of that. He's full of obedience, full of glory, full of purity. He's able to give us that each morning anew, even after we've admitted our failures. But our, our, our salvation ultimately will never be dependent upon our faithfulness. Know that. It's always going to be dependent upon the faithfulness of Christ. He is the one who not only set the example for us, but laid down his life for us that we might have those new morning mercies. But at the same time, I'd say this, even when we have failed and failed miserably in these trials that God has put us in, even when we have compromised 
and caused all sorts of horrible consequences in our lives. Know this. God works in those worst moments to instill faith and repentance in us. God uses those really bad, indecisive moments in our life to strengthen us for the next time. If we're willing to learn from it, he will give us new mercies. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do, we lift up our our lives to you. We lift up our children, our grandchildren, generations to come, Lord, to you. We know that the faith that we have, most of us, it came from our fathers. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be able to try to instill that faith in the next generation. We know it's your sovereign plan. We know it's up to you ultimately. But, Lord, we pray you would continue to, to put, uh, put our children in a way, Lord, that no, give us wisdom. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult age in which we live. We feel like Babylon has taken over our country and over our towns in so many ways. Lord, help us to know what's the right thing to do in this generation. Give us wisdom. We pray as well, Lord, that you would help us to be a model for the younger generations, those of us who are older. Lord, help us to be faithful in the midst of this generation. Help us to give, give us a good word to say to those that are behind us. But Lord, ultimately we pray you would help us to understand more and more of the gospel each day. We know that it's, the gospel is for sinners, it's for failures, it's for those who have done the most wicked deeds. Lord, help us to look by faith to Jesus Christ, we pray.